You're listening to The Maastricht Diplomat. Welcome back, everyone, to the second episode of the Understanding Europe podcast series, a collaboration between Serim and The Maastricht Diplomat. Today, Brendan and I will attempt to understand what just transition actually means. A just transition has become an ubiquitous term in much of EU policy, showing up here and there, but never quite being defined as one idea. In short, it is an idea of not leaving anyone behind when trying to address the challenge of climate change. This concept is even more relevant in light of COP27, the annual climate summit happening in Egypt this November, where this idea of just transition has become a major theme. While looking into EU climate policies, a lot of terms pop up, such as EU Green Deal, Fit for 55, Automation, Green Jobs, and so much more. And to make sense of all of these, all of these terms and how they connect to one another, we interviewed today Francesca Colli, Assistant Professor in European Politics at FASOS, and Toon van Overbeke, Assistant Professor of Europe, Climate and Digital Society, also at FASOS. With their help, we will unpack what a just transition is in economic, political, social, and most importantly, climate terms, all while looking at how the EU and its member states work together to implement this transition, but also how the EU addresses its responsibilities towards third countries, third countries being the countries that are not members of the European Union. With that said, let's get the conversation started. Welcome, Francesca and Toon. It's very nice to have you with us in this episode. Since our discussion today is on the just transition and both of your research tackled that concept from different angles, why don't you start us off with introducing your field of research and how does just transition figure into that? Sure. Yeah, so my research is mostly actually on civil society engagement in the EU, so how they run their campaigns, how NGOs lobby or advocate for policies, And more recently, I've been focusing on climate policies because I, as part of my work or as an interlude to my academic work, I was working for a think tank in Brussels where there I was focusing on the European Green Deal, which had just been proposed. Uh, so the EU's main climate policy or package at the moment. And so now I'm very interested in civil society's involvement in climate policies, of which the just transition is obviously an important factor because I think we're going to talk about how that means including all different aspects and, and all different voices in the climate debate, including civil society organizations and regular people. Just to, to define what you mean, but civil society, how would you briefly define it and just to understand? It? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I don't think there's one single definition, but in the way that I understand it, it's more um, kind of NGOs and kind of social movements. So people acting together and the regular people, let's say, and their representation in, in politics, basically, and in the political sphere. And this includes corporations also? Uh, no. So that's interesting, maybe a little bit of a tangent, but the EU does define it with corporations, uh, labor unions, and all sorts of anything that represents a kind of social interest. But generally, in my research and in many academic research kind of terms, it's really used just to represent let's say, public interest groups, so groups that don't represent a specific sectorial or industrial interest, but rather like the general interest of the public or something like environment or human rights, things that are a broad interest. So I wouldn't include companies in that, no. Fair enough. 
Yeah, and my work also sort of talks about social pressure groups, but slightly different ones, so the ones that uh, Francesca exactly wants to exclude. I'm a political economist, and I've mostly worked on automation, and I've been particularly interested in, in finding out how unions and employers negotiate over this, and particularly how European societies adapt to this transition. And what I've come to think is that automation is this intertemporal policy issue, which you know causes problems today, but if we solve it, it can be great tomorrow. And I found out that actually climate change is very similar to that problem. And therefore, I'm also starting to think about uh, climate change and particularly how climate change challenges people's jobs, how unions mobilize on that issue. Um, yeah, that kind of stuff. What do you mean then by automation mm -hmm. and how do you then think about it in climate terms? So automation, simply put, is a substitution of humans by capital in production. So it simply means that instead of humans doing certain tasks to produce certain goods like a car or providing a service like uh, i don't know cutting someone's hair we now have machines or maybe software performing those same tasks so we take the humans out of the production okay easy enough to understand <laughs> straightforward thank you for for introducing us to to what you specialize in we could start off this episode by really looking at what the eu does to address its climate transition ambitions. We could briefly look at what those ambitions are. Uh, I think outlined is the big one being uh, Fit for 55, which is coming up in 2030, which is reducing total emissions by 55% by 1990s levels, I'm yeah. pretty mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ahead <laughs> of exactly. 1990, yeah. Um, and then following up, hopefully being uh, climate neutral by 2050, moving on to carbon negative going forward mm -hmm. I, I would i think that's the overall yeah. goal yeah exactly in doing this something that comes up more than once when you read through you know countless white papers or research white papers being policy papers that are suggested comes this term just transition which uh seems to touch on every aspect of this uh transition especially from being taken up by by uh, eu policymakers and civil society etc so let's let's maybe uh, look at some specific policies francesca you talked about the european green deal could you outline what that is briefly <laughs> sure yeah so the european green deal was basically the first big policy paper and proposal package really and strategy for the eu's climate goals that the von der Leyen Commission, so the current commission that is in place, and the European Commission is like the government of the EU, let's say. So when she came into power and got the presidency in December 2019, this was the first um, strategy that she released. So it was a clear indication that this was a really a priority for her commission and for the EU in the years to come. Uh, and the, the Green Deal is basically the big strategy that all these other things you mentioned, like Fit for 55, uh, the climate law, which is the law that enshrines those you know, 55% by 2030 and net zero by 2050, that falls under the Green Deal. So it's really this overarching strategy that covers basically every sector in the EU. It outlines a lot of existing laws and regulations that need to be changed to meet different goals and to, to reach net zero by 2050. Uh, and it also suggests new things uh, and new policies as well. Uh, so it's really, whenever we talk about climate policy, current climate policies in the EU, 
we're essentially talking about things that fall under the Green Deal, uh, which is why you hear it a lot, mm. <laughs> basically. So it's like the umbrella umbrella term or the umbrella policy, which fit for 55 or just transition mechanism or fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty also falls under. Is that how can we understand it? Yeah, yeah. It's okay. like a big umbrella. The, the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty is not an EU policy, so that's separate. Okay. Um, but fit for 55, which is actually also a umbrella package Mm -hmm. falls under the broader umbrella of the green deal so it's yeah it's the green deal doesn't really have legal um yeah it's not it's not a legally binding regulation or a law it's just the strategy saying in the next five years this is what we're going to do and so everything that's come since is based on that original policy Mm. document and then the fit for 55 is it legally binding yeah well yeah it's a package of Legally binding policy proposals. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. You have to think of the fifth for fifty-five as just again an umbrella, a sub-umbrella comprising of like loads, hundreds of different policy initiatives, which each of themselves will be legally binding, right? So mm. how will we tackle biodiversity or mm. what will car emissions look like in, in, in twenty thirty? Mm-hmm. All these different policy proposals are part of, of the fit for fifty-five package. Yeah. So within the EU Green Deal umbrella comes the term just transition mechanism, if that's right. Maybe in your words, you can briefly tell us what just transition mechanism means and what does it entail? Yeah, yeah. So the just transition mechanism was actually one of the first policy proposals to come out of the Green Deal. And so it was the big selling point of the Green Deal. And I think it was mentioned when we were chatting before before we recorded uh, is that the EU doesn't want to leave anyone behind in the transition. It was a big selling point in the Green Deal. Uh, we can see it a bit as a, also a reaction to like the Gilets Jaunes in France and these movements against climate policy and right-wing populism and this sort of thing, showing that, okay, we're not going to just ignore half the population when we do this. And so the Just Transition Mechanism is basically a way to support regions in the EU that currently rely very much on kind of what Toon actually studies in the sense of like the transition from fossil fuel industries and fossil fuel intensive production to green and like net zero production uh, of goods. And so it's a way of financially supporting those regions. So basically the regions have to produce territorial just transition plans where they say this is how we're going to retrain the workers. So people who work in coal mines, they're not going to have a job in even like 10 years, right? They, they, we can't continue mining coal and burning it or even exporting it. So how are we going to retrain them? What sort of jobs are we going to give them? How are we going to transform this region? So what happened in the 50s, let's say in Belgium, for instance, and in, even in this area when coal mining stopped in the Ruhrgebiet in, in Germany, a lot of industrial towns were basically just abandoned and people didn't have any options. And so this is really to prevent this happening in places like Poland and Czech Republic that now have the same problem that much of Western Europe had 50 years ago. Exactly. So just to give an idea about what this looks like on the ground, basically last year, the same week, I was in the Czech Republic to talk to unions and particularly unions for metalworks in the east of the country. And so what they have there is, you know, it's a big employer. A lot of people work in metal factories. It's also one of the biggest metal producing regions of Europe. So it's quite important. But the thing is, they work with factories which are 50, 60 years old, which means they're extremely polluting. They're very inefficient. They use a lot of resources. And if you want to go towards carbon neutrality, these kind of metalworks have to change drastically. And for example, now they're thinking about installing hybrid furnaces, which is nice because these furnaces use much less steel. They can use scrap steel, much less energy is used. So potentially great. But also there's a lot of problems attached to this whole system. 
for one, the workers who are currently working in these uh, in these steelworks will have to be retrained, which costs money. The, the machinery will much, be much more efficient. So old workers will probably no longer have a job. So they need early retirement, costs money. These hybrid furnaces are great, but they use more electricity than the current furnaces, which means new electricity grids need to be created. More energy must be created, hopefully without coal. So there's a lot of investment that needs to happen in order to make this transition happen. And as Francesca said, regions can make territorial plans about what they need in their region to reach their carbon neutrality, what the key social problems are. And then the European Union can step in if they agree and fund these proposals in order to make sure that this transition can actually happen because there's just a lot of barriers in the market to getting these things spontaneously. So that's basically what the Just Transition is trying to do. Okay. To kind of just summarize a bit what you've said. So the Just Transition mechanism uses this idea of just transition, which is a form of, I guess, transitional justice to make sure that people in industrial areas or just in general people who are the first affected are then funded by an EU-based approach so so that it's not only up to the member states to take care of this. Yeah, exactly. You just have to consider this is basically reorganizing the economy at full scale, right? Yeah. And that will create opportunities. Like, for example, if you have companies that create solar panels, they have opportunities to have sort of even more sales, great. The flip side of that is that some people will lose out and it will pose costs on some sectors, some workers, particularly people who just don't have the ability to absorb those costs. If you're a factory worker in the Czech Republic, you know, it's not like you have great margins. So if you lose your job, it's a real problem. And the just transition mechanism just there to make sure that as much as possible, we sort of make sure that no person is left behind, right? That individuals aren't bearing the cost of this transition because that would be completely socially unjust. So how do then unions and um, organized labor from a bottom-up approach see this and interact with, let's say, the EU representatives in the area or, or the member states in forming the policy on, on the ground, like the actual transition? So union ideas about the just transition mechanism are extremely diverse, right? As you might expect, there's different sectors, different types of unions within those sectors. From my experience, there's some unions which are completely opposed to it. For example, I was talking to union leaders for coal mining in Poland. Now, for those mines, there's almost no perspective, right? They are going to close in the long term. And as a union, that's a hard thing to get on board with because you're there primarily to make sure that your members have economic opportunities and stay employed and have good employment. And any transition that ensures that that employment will be gone for sure, you know, it's something you can hardly sign up to. But at the same time, there's also some unions who are quite eager to work with this just transition mechanism. For example, those steel workers I was talking about, they see it as an opportunity to keep that steel, those steel plants in the Czech Republic because they know at the moment we're working with old factories and you know they're not that efficient. We're being outcompeted by China. But if we actually make some compensation, some people who go early retirement, some people that retrain, then we can actually create these new fantastic factories in, in Europe, which will be globally competitive. So they also see some, some potential benefits here. But it definitely dep depends on the sector, the type of workers, the type of union. It's, it's quite diverse, as you might expect. Yeah. So there's no uniform no. answer. <laughs> Impossible. Yeah. Does it also depend on how you communicate these policies to the labor unions? Well, in general, I think the just transition mechanism has done a good, or at least the commission has done a good attempt to sort of bring unions into this discussion, and that always helps. 
but there's really no good way to tell uh, a coal miner that his job will disappear, right? Yeah. The hard way, the soft way, either way, they're going to be quite angry. or, or The outcome is the same, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Maybe as a side note, the term just transition itself is actually from the labor movement. So it was invented by labor unions, which is also why it's very specifically on labor in the transition. Because, of course, there's broader terms of yeah, transitional justice, climate justice, which involve a broader segment of society. And that's why the just transition mechanism is just on labor. So indeed, it, I mean, obviously, it doesn't mean that all labor unions accept it, as, as Tun just mentioned, but it is very much a bottom up concept that has come onto the radar and come into politics now. And I think this is actually, there are lots of flaws and some of them I outline in, in different research that I've done. But one of the good things is that it this is one of the first kind of public policies that actually deals with this and provides structural support. Because previously, I mean, of course, member states and different regions have had programs, but often it's been just up to the companies themselves to kind of deal with it. And often the companies don't really care about their workers, which is, of course, also a big problem. But often, you know, it's easier to just hire people who have already trained rather than retraining your own workers. And so I think that it's it is positive that this is actually existing uh, as kind of the first of its kind. Mm -hmm. So when you say that just transition focuses mainly on labor, that's in EU context, then how do you, how can we talk about just transition socially and does the EU factor that in then? Yeah, I mean, it just <laughs> focuses on labor, essentially. It, it is a relatively narrow, it can be criticized for that in a sense, but I think the EU's got a lot of other policies under this huge umbrella of the Green Deal and even of 50, Fit for 55 where they do insert other things. So, so as an example, they have the Social Climate Fund, uh, which was released as part of Fit for 55, and that's basically to accompany the reform of the emissions trading scheme. So the emissions trading scheme is basically the market for carbon pricing, like the, the carbon price in the EU, right? Like you have to pay kind of a tax to be able to emit carbon. And one of the proposals is to extend this to buildings and roads. And of course, those are areas where it means that regular people so people who own houses people who drive cars will have to pay which we don't have to at the moment it's just companies and like businesses and industries who emit in certain sectors uh, and so to accompany this they have the social climate fund which basically like at the beginning it will provide kind of subsidies to the people who will be most affected and who can't afford to pay a tax on carbon uh, and then after that it's supposed to provide more structural support to renovate houses so that if you live in a badly insulated house you can get subsidies for this but so that's more, I would say, an example of respecting the right to decent living standards and, and a healthy environment, for instance. So that's, I think the EU has very much segmented its policies to say, well, this is just transition, focusing on labor in the affected regions. This is focusing more on regular people. And then, of course, there's also the global aspect, which is, of course, a different area of its policy and diplomacy and the global climate justice mm -hmm. aspects. So just to, to understand what you're saying is that in much of the if you look at the EU policy as a whole it has effectively set different definitions for just transition in different fields but just transition itself does not necessarily focus on labor but for example we were talking about before with the just transition mechanism that would be specifically labor but then you look at something with the social fund where okay this is affecting let's say people in rural France who can't pay more for petrol, that would then be a different form almost of just transition, uh, focusing more on, on non-labor non aspects of it. It's the same principle behind it, right? But I, I think it's also worthwhile mentioning that even though the just transition mechanism focuses a lot on labor and employees, it's not just about retraining people and making sure that people aren't 
just put on the street without any compensation. You know, it's also investing in public infrastructure. And you just have to think about what it means to take away very pollutive plants out of a region. It also means that people in that region no longer have to deal with very bad air pollution, right? So in that sense, it has much broader consequences still, right? Even though sort of the main partners are sort of traditional social partners, right, in, in that discussion. Okay, thank you. Looking at what we've already talked about, we've discussed how the just transition is differently segmented through the EU's policies. And not only that, but seems to have different definitions that are linked in the fact that it is supposed to help the transition and help people during the transition. But one thing that this brings up as a question is this segmentation, this sectoral divide in, in the EU's policy, for example, the CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy, or the cohesion funds, um, what kind of consistencies in just transition or in the, uh, to those climate goals are there between these different policies, do you think? I think it's particularly hard to say because at the moment, sort of Fit for 55 legislation is very much sort of a moving target, right? And we don't exactly know where everything is going to land, what it's going to look like. We all know the EU is particularly good at making sort of compromises that sort of end up stretching everywhere. So it's hard to say. My intuition would be that if we want to go so hard for this Fit for 55, which I think is a good idea, we definitely need to consider other policy areas like the coming agricultural policy, which is notoriously, you know, one which takes in a lot of money, doesn't necessarily create all that efficient agriculture. So there probably needs to be some some more integrative thinking, but I mean, I, I would find it hard to say. Yeah. One point is maybe that the just transition mechanism falls under cohesion policy. So it, the funds that you are used to finance the just transition are from the cohesion funds. Um, so it's partly that and partly external other funding that they mobilized. But so th this is kind of, I guess, there is some consistency because it is in cohesion. So it's not it's not under an environmental policy per se. It's more in, yeah, regional development. And then I think, yeah, with the cap, I would agree with Tone. Like it's, there was a moment last year, 2021, where they were debating and they had just released the 55 package, but they were also having the farm to fork debate, which is, basically also another part of the green deal dealing with agriculture and it yeah notoriously got watered down essentially um i think we all know that we need to reduce meat consumption dairy consumption but this is something that in the agricultural council so the grouping of agricultural ministers most countries cannot accept saying we need to reduce farming of livestock like it's and th this i think is also part of the just transition because farmers it's not really their fault right like they they need alternative methods and so in that sense there's not really currently a just transition for the agricultural industry or the sector so that's a maybe lack of consistency but it's also because that i guess when we're talking about it, it sort of raises a double political dimension right if you are going to change the way we produce industrial products okay that, that might be problematic for unions but ultimately consumers get the same mm. products more or less now it's much more politically contentious to say not only are we going to sort of upset the people producing the things, but also you as a consumer, you shouldn't eat that much meat anymore, right? Now yeah. we're sort of touching on two different electorates, which, you know, that gets really contentious. And that's probably part of the <laughs> reason why, you know, we're still in a bit of a dilemma here. Yeah. Mm, but overall, to understand it more conceptually, is the implementation of the climate policy and, you know, other aspects of it, specifically just transition, are done sector by sector. And these overarching umbrellas allow 
for a, a, a slow and steady kind of realignment of the financing of these different policies, for example, as you said, uh, Francesca, for the uh, cohesion funding mm-hmm. being realigned to to fit these transition goals or or the lack thereof in the cap. So the slow and difficult process of, of realigning the goals within those policies is practically what it what the what the transition is the climate transition legally at least speaking yeah okay maybe the issue is that because they are sectoral policies and because it involves this aligning of all the sectors towards the goal ideally it's great and the green deal obviously was drafted by you know mostly climate and environmental people but then each individual policy is debated within that kind of branch of the commission and within that branch of the council so it Again, with the CAP example, it's with agricultural ministers, with people who work for the Agri-DG in, in the European Commission. And of course, they there is a lot of communication between the two, but fundamentally, the agricultural ministers represent agricultural interests and the agricultural well-being and not necessarily the environmental kind of goals. And so that's why sometimes they can lead to these inconsistencies when things get watered down or kind of, you know shift a little bit in trying to make these Mm. famous compromises (laughs) it's worthwhile pointing out that we can make jokes about compromises but ultimately i I think it's good that that they exist and we shouldn't go (laughs) for the most totalitarian version of a green deal because that probably wouldn't be a great uh, idea either i mean we might get to net zero but who knows what our political climate would look like so the eu works as it does and (laughs) indeed with its benefits and its flaws so yeah. so what the social and economic put together is is the political i assume <laughs> so the the issue often is for just transition and, and almost the it's it's raison d'etre like the, the, the reason it's around is, is the the political stability around the climate transition exactly we want to generate buy-in right mm-hmm. among people who might be adversely affected by this transition you mentioned how you know when you look at it from from cap reforms it affects the the farmer and how they need to produce and probably adversely but it's not only prescriptive for the producers but also for consumers and, and mm-hmm. that can be very politically difficult as we've seen with the current war in ukraine i think the the lesson is the is the same in that making changes rapid changes to or asking for rapid changes in order to commit to a kind of conceptual goal so i need to lower my temperature of my house because there's a war in ukraine is a is already an example of some of the difficulty in in communicating that kind of disconnect between mm-hmm. what you're what you have to deal with in the day to day and what the what the goal is right um, uh, I have to eat less meat because that produces more carbon it's it's already a a difficult topic as it is where do you think the just transition concept comes into the communication aspect of these political goals of these climate goals. Is it mm. related to asking people to make individual kind of behavioral choices or just more in general on the policies? I brought up the individual choices to kind of illustrate the political dimension of getting people to change for something. I think we actually underestimate people and how ready they are to make changes. Mm-hmm. So obviously there's big differences in segments of the population and age. I always like to look towards the younger generations because they're the ones who are going to be living through the crisis. I like to include myself in the younger <laughs> generations as well. But um, but I think, you know, we see already among young people, many people already have not fully given up meat, but gone like flexitarian or mm. reduced their meat consumption. This is very normal now mm. for many young people. And 
I think that's a positive thing. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's the EU's or any government's position to say to ban meat. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think people are more ready to make changes than we maybe give them credit for Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. Uh, And often the barriers are things like the price is too high or, you know, there's no subsidies, so I can't actually renovate my house to put in insulation, for instance. So I think in that sense, this is maybe not about communication, but it's more the policies should support people to be able to make those choices. And I think going back to the cap, which we talked about before, one of the maybe sillier debates in the farm to fork discussion last year was, you know, renaming sausages, vegetarian sausages to be like meat tubes it was particularly the meat industry didn't want them to be called sausages because they said that should be protected Mm. and this wasn't something that consumers are are concerned about so i also think that a lot of the time these kind of false choices of like making people seem like they don't want to make choices can often be actually from industry who actually want to try and lobby to stop Mm. Mm -hmm. um stop the choices being actually as easy so i think part of it is communication part of it is already done so i don't think it's not necessarily as big of a problem as we necessarily think it is and then we need good policies to support people to make Make decisions Mm -hmm. whether they're being able to buy vegetarian sausages or renovate your house or you Mm -hmm. know um many people want to for instance get a heat pump that yeah. like that in the end it saves you money but obviously that's a big cost that many people can't afford right now so if you have policies that allow people to do that and allow them to put those measures in place people are actually pretty willing to make a change mm. yeah i think i completely agree if you look at actually the total consumption of meat in many advanced economies has been declining surprisingly for a couple of years now which is great news and i also don't think it's it's a great move on on behalf of any government and especially not the eu to be very prescriptive in saying what citizens should and shouldn't do, mm. I think that will, mm. you know, not generate the desired result. Instead, what the EU seems to be doing is exactly what, what Francesca is saying, making sure that at the macro level, things are priced correctly, right? And that people then can make decisions based on that. And then you run into the problem, do people have the money? And there's already plenty of research that shows that if there's shocks like like now COVID shock or an inflation shock with Ukraine crisis or people lose their jobs, then they're massively unwilling to take these short-term decisions, right? Mm. And they tend to be less willing to consider climate as a priority. So I think the most important thing the government and especially you can do is to make sure that people have stable stable economic environment where they can sort of make the, the correct choices mm-hmm. that's probably what you should be focusing on rather mm-hmm. than being very prescriptive in saying what citizens should and shouldn't do yeah and if i could maybe raise two things from my own research that i see as a positive sign one is i think previously maybe only for a short period but there was a big focus in the environmental movement about like individual behavior so changing your consumption buying mm-hmm. less etc and i I think that that remains. Everyone acknowledges that that's important. But I think the new climate movement really puts an emphasis on, yeah, okay, we can all eat no meat and we're still going to, you know, there's still going to be climate change because the fossil fuel industry continues to dig new oil wells and get um, start fracking and everything. So I think there's been a shift to looking more at this political action as really key. And I think that is an actually a really good thing because it's true that alone, even if we are everyone trying to change yeah. behaviors, it's the structures that need to change. Yeah. Um, and the second is more inclusion of people in policymaking on climate. Mm. So we've seen a lot of climate assemblies popping up everywhere recently. 
um, in Ireland, in the UK, in France. At the EU, we had the Conference on the Future of mm -hmm. Europe. And basically, these assemblies give a random assortment of citizens the opportunity to weigh in on what policies they think are important. And this, I think, reflects the point that most people actually do want climate action. Mm. Um, they want change, and it's up to governments to actually live up to that, yeah. that change. Even, I think, the Gilets Jaunes, for instance, many of them are not necessarily against climate action mm. per se exactly. it's more well you need to take me into account mm -hmm. in the in the transition and that comes back to the just transition exactly so yeah i mean if you look at just to underpin this point if you look at polling data and and ask european citizens what they think are the most important challenges facing them climate change tends to be ranked pretty highly which tells us that citizens individually do care about it and exactly as francesca said people like the gilets jaunes probably don't aren't against climate change. They just don't want Parisians telling them they should be taking public transport if, <laughs> when that's completely infeasible in rural France, right? <laughs> it's, it's about, you know, making sure that people can make the right decisions. Mm. Okay, so there's two aspects. And one was the communication of these structural changes. And then the other one was the structural changes themselves. And so from my understanding of what you just said is they're linked because the structural changes are the way to physically achieve the, the climate goals. And as part of those structural changes, integrating just transition into each section of that would create the necessary buy-in, mm -hmm. the necessary willingness to kind of completely jump on board. While people may already want to or have climate change as, as one of their major concerns, the difficulty is often committing because you, you can't buy a heat pump you can't mm -hmm. can't afford this change in, on an individual level thus the just transition as a, as a kind of structural concept almost is to make sure that you can really just take everyone with you mm -hmm. right so that's if i'm understanding correctly <laughs> that's kind of yes. what it is and the other aspect is communicating it and this marries the two of them these citizens assemblies or how, let's say, civil society as a whole also participates in these, in these assemblies. They, on the one hand, they affect the policies because they give recommendations, but then also they can affect how uh, it's communicated to other people either within or externally to the citizens' assemblies. Uh, is, that, is that right? Yeah, I mean, they can have a kind of selling function because if mm -hmm. you have a hundred citizens who participate in the assembly, they'll go back and they'll tell their friends and family, oh, I was in the assembly and we did this and this was fun. Or, you know, we I heard from some interesting people, I had some interesting discussions and then word kind of spreads. But they're not necessarily used for communication about the policies itself. Mm -hmm. They are a way to get citizens more interested in politics because obviously you're more likely to keep up to date if you know that you can have a... Uh, make an actual difference or, you know, yeah. have, have, have a, a say, say in it. Yeah. Exactly. But communicating policies is very important, right? I mean, there's so much research from the US that shows that a lot of poor people, for example, don't know the social programs they could benefit from. Mm. And in many cases, it's rich people who have plenty of resources, time to, you know, go through different tax breaks that find out things they could benefit from. So it's not just enough to say, okay, now we're going to create all these nice programs that so makes it possible for people to buy heat pumps or, you know, get a tax break on there. Um, you also need to make sure people know this. And that's, that's of course, quite hard. And that's something I think many governments will, will struggle with. Mm. Yeah. And this is obviously no longer the EU we're talking about either because yeah. the EU is, while they create a lot of this money and the funds, mm. it's usually then implemented by exactly. the member states or in Belgium, even the regions. And mm. so it's more the really the national and subnational levels that need to 
make sure that citizens know. Maybe that's another sector that the just transition can then eventually be uh, delved into. But I think we could sum it up that this was a relatively hopeful part of the discussion because actually Mm -hmm. a lot of the work is done in convincing people and it's just then putting things into place and actually communicating them about them, which of course is also tough. But I think it's nice that citizens are on board and that we don't need to necessarily convince them of the first step of the equation. But if we speak of the just transition politically, then there's also this communication between member states within each other to reach a certain consensus, right? And within a heavily charged political environment right now, how does the EU look into not convincing, but maybe reaching a common ground with other stakeholders or other parties that are not EU member states to kind of walk towards the goal that the EU has set together and to make sure that other parties are also abiding by the regulations in between air quotes to reach a 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2030. And how does the EU then communicate with other parties to get them into... More into line. Into line, (laughs) to get them into line. (laughs) Well, there's different strategies, right? Of Mm. course, there's the EU does like soft diplomacy. It tells countries which are not as great in terms of climate performance that they should consider, you know, the climate and the long-term future of our planet. But generally, that has really mixed effects, I'd say. I mean, there's money the EU gives has pledged in, what was it, six years ago, seven years ago? A hundred billion. A hundred billion for sort of countries which are not as rich as as the EU so that they could make this transition, which is basically the same as a just transition fund for non-EU countries, right? But famously, this target has never been reached. Now we're promising that we'll reach it next year. The EU has lost a lot of credibility on this front, so... Let's see. Where was the loss in credibility? Europe, America, Japan pledged 100 billion euros, which has never really materialized, right? Uh, So there was a story, okay, we're going to do this as a planet, you know, all countries. And sort of the Western countries, which have basically contribute most of the carbon in the the atmosphere, will sort of offset that price by giving 100 billion financing for third countries. But that money was never put in or only at a very small rate. So we've lost some credibility on that front. Now, there's also other plans. For example, within the Green Deal and the Fit for 55, there's an idea to have a carbon border tax so that countries like China, which produce goods and services in sort of more carbon-intensive ways, are forced to pay a tax when they import their goods to the European market. So that both makes sure that these companies have an incentive to you know, improve their performance, but also ensures that we are on a level playing field with third countries while we're forcing our own producers to, you know, have more carbon neutral production methods. So on the one hand, the EU, I'm talking about the EU, but including others, hasn't followed up on its commitments to help third countries develop the capacities to to transition. And then with the other hand says, yeah, and you can't sell here anymore. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, the EU, I think, has met most of its targets. It's more like the US, Australia, the UK haven't mm-hmm. really been giving money, but many of the EU countries have been. But I mean, the 100 billion was, I think it was US dollars, was promised by all developed countries. So at, at the COPs, they generally kind of the negotiations are often split into the groups of developed countries and developing countries because they have different responsibilities and different jobs, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the group of developing yeah. countries that promised this money. And so as a group, they're definitely yeah. falling short. But yeah, it's as you say, right, there's carrots and sticks, which we try to use mm-hmm. to, to entice third countries to move. 
But I think there's another point to highlight, which is that the Green Deal is not just a way, a strategy to sort of transition as an economy. It's also an industrial strategy for Europe. It's very explicitly in a goal to make sure Europe has cutting edge technologies in these green spaces so that when we entice third countries to move, we are the first ones that can sell it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, we try to sell it as a very benevolent strategy and, you know, it's a good thing to do. It's, it's great. But at the same time, we also have our own plans, right? And we shouldn't be stupid. Third countries know this as well. So they also, you know, consider our strategies as slightly self-interested, of course. When you put all of this together, it kind of becomes an industrial strategy, like an idea of what mm -hmm. the economy should look like in order to move forward. And Horizon Europe, which is the science policy of the EU, practically, gives us a nice way of looking at it because it does really highlight three pillars of, always three pillars, of uh, different sectors and, and parts of the economy they would like to put funding into in order to get this leg up going forward. That includes things like automation, if I'm not wrong. Mm -hmm. So how how does then automation play into this part of making Europe ready for uh, or to be competitive moving forward in that sense? So automation, the idea is always that it makes us more competitive because it's a more efficient way to produce goods and services, right? Instead of, you know, and it's bad to say this, and it's not, it's often the case but not always the case instead of hiring expensive employees which you then have to give long-term contracts in many parts of europe you put a machine there which does very similar tasks and if COVID hits the machine doesn't get sick it can work on so there's a lot of benefits towards automation which make our firms more competitive and also in many cases slightly greener because if you think about high precision manufacturing it requires less inputs and less inputs means you have to use some fewer uh, resources. So that, that's great in terms of a climate target as well. So it's, you know, this, this idea that cuts across a lot of the important issues. So, so not only is it competitive uh, advantage, but also it is part of moving to a carbon neutral or even a carbon negative economy. So there's definitely parts of, I mean, you have to qualify this because, of course, robots, they don't run on dreams. They <laughs> run on, ele <laughs> on electricity or some kind of energy, right? So that, that has a cost. But definitely in terms of raw material, they tend to be very efficient. I mean, not just robots. Think about things like 3D printing, which is a very sort of a new thing. The way you produce things with 3D printing or um, how do they call it exactly? Additive idea. manufacturing, yeah. sorry. It's much much better way to deal with resources. Instead of making a chair or a table by chopping down a tree and then taking away 90% of the tree until you're left with a plank, additive manufacturing just uses the exact amount of resources you need for the final product. So that's also slightly more efficient and turns out it also is an automated way of production, right? So these two things can go together for sure. Then what's the difference between automation and green jobs? Or is it not the same thing? Or does automation fall under green jobs then? Oh, I think they're slightly different things, right? So okay. automation is just, as I said, mm. machines doing jobs you humans used to do. Okay. And green jobs, you know, it's a sort of a, a new term maybe, is an idea that there are some jobs in the economy that will benefit from the green transition. Think of if you're an installer of solar panels, if you, I don't, know, I don't know, some kind of engineer creating new technological widgets will, which will make the economy greener. Mm -hmm. So those are clearly people who will stand to benefit from the green transition and the EU pouring money into, into, that, into that innovation. But there's also jobs that stand to lose. We talked about them before, right? For example, if you're a coal miner, that's mm -hmm. a brown job. Okay. 
and you know these are jobs which contribute to CO2 in the atmosphere and according to the green deal they will sort of likely have a less rosy future but to kind of bring it back to the just transition aspect of it we've mentioned the hand in hand idea of transition of the economy by necessity and the benefits of if you move fast uh, you can position yourself or the eu can position itself in a uh, in a way where europe is at the forefront of these technologies and these industries we're recording before but this episode will air after cop 27 and this week the council released the eu's position a lot of it focuses around the idea of loss and damage and working on what the role is for the eu but mainly what are the roles of developed economies and their responsibilities to developing economies practically based on how much carbon they've already put into the atmosphere we've touched upon this before in this conversation um however as the as was said in this in the in these council conclusions and one of the main parts of cop 27 is this idea of of loss and damage which which practically is reparations in different words right looking at addressing the funding gap almost or the burden of countries that are affected right now already by climate change related loss and damage which loss and damage is defined as what it sounds like the damages of climate change and the loss attributed to that either by lives mm-hmm. uh, economic or non-economic right it can also be uh, ecosystems that yeah, are no yeah. longer there and so where the developed countries kind of come in in this is how much of the burden should they share how much should they pay for hard currency and also in maybe using their capabilities and that that's what's going to be discussed this well these upcoming weeks uh, we don't know what's going to be the outcome but why i went on this long rant is uh to to ask you how do you think the way that the eu has dealt with just transition internally how does just transition then factor into this as a, a guiding principle on how the eu should play a role internationally uh... yeah i mean i think we're probably in academic terms talking more about the broader term of like global climate justice now which i would say in answer to your question is kind of just an extension of the just transition principle to a more global level or playing field where the inequalities i'd say are obviously more extreme than in the eu Although even in the EU, there are countries that are already being much more affected by climate change than others, obviously. And I think there are two aspects. And so one is the climate finance that we would, that Toon mentioned before. Um, and that I would say is maybe more similar to how the just transition mechanism works and the way that it works in the EU, like supporting countries in the global south, developing countries to actually make the transition. Um, whereas loss and damage is indeed more like reparations, more for stuff that's already actually happened. And I'd say the EU is probably one of the developed, let's call it a country, but it's not one country, but the the negotiating partners in the developed world who are pushing more for this. Um, mostly loss and damage has been pushed on the agenda by the developing countries. So the group of 77, which is mm. a particular group at the COPs, and uh, China is also pushing for it. Whereas, you know, other developed countries aren't super keen to be paying money for damage that has already occurred, essentially. Um, but I mean, on good news, Denmark, I think, has been the, become the first country in the world to actually pledge money for loss yeah. and damage. I think they did 13 million euros, more or less, uh, which they'll, you know, give in as basically humanitarian aid um, to countries. 13 uh, million? Yep, okay. 13 million. 
That's yeah. I mean, it's, a nice it's not gesture, very much, right? but but it yeah. is only Denmark as well, right? right so it's, sure. <laughs> it's also, I think in Danish krona it was like a hundred million. So, <laughs> so it sounds better That's when they say trick. it in krona. <laughs> wow, <laughs> but so I think it's definitely the same principles as just transition, but on a bigger scale, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So the whole idea is the same, but and it's definitely true that Europe is is the one who's mm. more willing to like n- commit money that is not necessarily investment. But I would nevertheless expect that money that's going to go towards sort of developing countries will, for the most part, be investment. Because governments tend to feel most at ease if if that's the way they're spending money, you know. I mean, I think even within the EU as well, there's big differences between the member states. um, And like the proof is obviously Denmark and a lot of the Scandinavian countries are in general a lot more prone to giving aid. Mm -hmm. And then... Obviously, countries where there's more climate skeptic governments in power are less likely to actually even buy into the idea of loss and damage because they'll say, well, it's not climate change, right? Or like these are normal weather patterns. So Mm. it then becomes a kind of more political question as well. But I think the interesting point is that like loss and damage, as you kind of mentioned, has been on the radar for a really long time, mostly from developing countries that have been pushing for it, you know, since the Paris Agreement mentions it and it's kind of been trying, they've tried to put on the agenda each year this year i think it's still not officially on the agenda but it's almost definitely going to be discussed because Mm -hmm. there has to be consensus about what's put on the agenda in the first days Uh, but i think with the eu on board as the council conclusions kind of indicate i think it will probably be touched on and so that is in itself positive because i the cops they move pretty slowly so (laughs) you know (laughs) just the fact that we talked about is a is a good step though not enough and on that note, we get to our conclu- concluding segment, Secondary Sources, where our guest interviewees uh, will suggest to our listeners any source, film, podcast, book, whatever you deem important for uh, our listeners to dive delve deeper into what we've been talking about or what you think can be an interesting thing to look at. Yeah. So my recommendation would be a book that I read just this year at the suggestion of one of the NGOs that I interviewed, actually. Um, and that's called The Good Ancestor by Roman Krishnarek. I probably said that wrong because it's a Polish surname, but, and it's also got a TED talk and it's not necessarily the just transition, but it's about how to think long-term and how to escape the short-termism of politics and economics. So it, in that sense, a lot about intergenerational justice, which I think is super important point mm-hmm. that we didn't touch on because it's not really in any policies. Um, and I found it really fascinating and also quite hopeful, which is not often the case when you're reading about climate change. So <laughs> That sounds nice. Yeah. I want to read that. So my suggestion is a very boring academic book, unfortunately, it, but it's a great book. And, and I think it's quite accessible. It's called Carbon Captured, How Business and Labor Control Climate Politics by an author called Matto Mildenberger. And it's this really nice book that tries to understand why different governments adopt different climate policies at different rates. And not only does he sort of sketches out all the different reasons why we might try to, you know, how we could explain that, but then he sort of goes into a couple of countries, country cases like, I think, Australia, the United States and Sweden. And he gives a nice theory about how labor and business often actually collude to hold back climate policies. So that's, if you're interested in, in, in understanding that kind of stuff, that's really a great book to look at. Super interesting. And on that note, we've come to the end of the second episode of Understanding Europe. 
Thank you, Francesca and Toon, for being with us in this episode. Thank both of you for coming. Thanks uh, for having really us. Yeah, thank it. you. And to you, dear listeners, we hope this episode helped you make sense of what the just transition concept is. All the mentioned sources are in the description of this episode, so feel free to dig deeper into this interesting subject. And stay tuned for the December episode from Understanding Europe. Till then, take care. The music for the MD podcast episode has been produced by Stone Ocean. And this podcast episode has been produced, recorded, and edited by Brendan Hogan and yours truly, Sharal Abdullah. Talk to you soon. <laughs>